This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Michael Critchman about sexual health and libido. I'm so excited to bring this episode to you, and I made sure not to hold back on any of my questions because this is a taboo topic, but so important. Dr. Critchman is the executive director of the Southern California Center for Sexual Health and Survivorship Medicine, and he is the former co-director of the Sexual Medicine and Rehabilitation Program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer. You will find him to be extremely knowledgeable and incredibly compassionate in this conversation. I learned so much and cannot wait to share it with you. And before we dive in, a couple of announcements. One, please do check out my show notes for all the helpful information about FemPower Health. I'll share with you links to episodes that are related to this, my Instagram account where I will post things that I don't fit into these podcast episodes, and also links to products that are mentioned in the podcast or that I think you'll like and I highly recommend. Additionally, if you like this episode, please do rate it and write a review on iTunes because that's how we can ensure that this gets to the top of people's playlists. And I do put the link in my show notes. So thank you in advance for doing that. Without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Critchman. I'm a, a little bit different than most clinicians because I'm also a, I'm an MD and I'm also a sex counselor and therapist. So I kind of look at the whole picture. And with that caveat, what I would say is for many, many years, we looked at women primarily as having psychological issues when it came to being uh, diagnosed with a sexual problem, Okay. And what that meant is, if you look at the tr- if you look at the traditional treatment paradigms, uh, they said go get a warm bath, go buy some shoes, take a nighty because you're depressed and you're frigid. But on the contrary, so horrific. I remember when we first um, started getting to know each other, you shared that story, and I. I... <laughs> yeah, it, it's like cringeworthy, right? Yes. And when. And when you have a man, what happens? He comes in and he says, you know, my erection isn't as wonderful as it would like to be. We instantly check his blood pressure and his cholesterol and his sugar level. We don't think that he's anxious or depressed. So it just shows the dichotomy, right? Women are heavily weighted in psychology and they don't really know, they really didn't put value on biology. And men, the same thing, we overemphasize biology and didn't put in psychology. And I think the important trend now really is to understand that it's an interplay between both. I always say women have veins, arteries, and nerves and hormones that influence tissue and responsivity. And, you know, men get anxious and they get depressed and they have fatigue and they have psychological concerns as well. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of, we're playing catch up and it's a delicate balance between. No, absolutely. And I so appreciate you saying the complexity of it, because when I read your approach, depending on the condition 
the approach was the same, which is really taking a very deep dive into the person. And it wasn't just your typical, do you exercise? Let's do some blood work. And have you had surgery? It's, it's a lot deeper than that. So first I wanted to start with a data point. 40 million women have a sexual dysfunction. And the other piece that I found interesting is when I was researching the libido aspect, because that's what a lot of um, people have been starting to, to ask about and wanted me to talk about on this podcast, but there was a breakdown. And to me, they were so nuanced that I was very curious, you know, how we can provide people perspective on what can impact one's libido but there's libido, arousal, and orgasms. And so, you know, this kind of struck me as how does one know if they need to see a specialist? And the reason why I asked this is one of the themes I'm seeing in my podcast is we women, I mean, the more I learn, and I've been doing this a while, I'm still like, wait, what? That's not normal. And so I always like to start with, what is normal? And again, I think I qualified. There's the way people want to live their lives. There isn't like a, if you do this, this is exactly normal, especially when it comes to sexual health. I know there's a lot of nuances, but I, I think what I'm trying to get at is, for example, when it comes to periods, there's heavy bleeding and then there's normal bleeding. But if you're living with yourself every day and you're not taught what that is, you kind of normalize whatever it is. So same with you know sexual desire and libido, orgasms, and arousal, we may think whatever we're living with is normal, but there could be something even better. So how can you help us understand like a baseline of what it should feel like and be like to be in a healthy, emotional state, physical state when it comes to sexual health? Well, I think it goes back to the beginning of what you were mentioning, right? You were talking about women and uh, who have sexual dysfunction, right? The 40 million women, yep. the, the, the number. And I think we have to make a distinction between sexual dysfunction and sexual problem. And what I mean by that is sexual dysfunction is kind of this pervasive, invasive, distressing condition that's very impactful. And I think impact is very important. And a sexual problem, I always say, you know, look to your right, look to your left. Remember, somebody's looking at you and one of you has a sexual problem. Everybody has sexual problems, every single person. And what that means is sex waxes, it wanes, it gets better during certain times, it gets worse. Uh, we've seen sexual health really take a nosedive during the COVID pandemic. You know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing in terms of togetherness with your partner and your family and, you know, four walls are, are closing in on you. So I think the important thing to remember is if, if it is distressing and distressing to you, then it's the point where you get help. And when I say get help, it's not necessarily only medical or psychological. It's you, you start researching how I can feel better, right? And it's the same kind of concept about what is 
um, you know, I, I, I wish I could give you the right answer about what is normal, because I'm still trying to figure that out after being, you know, involved in the sexual medicine uh, arena for two and a half decades. Sexuality and sexual expression is individually defined. So, you know, we have to decide for ourselves, what do we feel comfortable with? So let me give you an example. So if we have a gentleman who is self-stimulating once a month and he's not troubled by it and he finds that it's, you know, relieving and he's enjoying his life, then there's no problem. If we have another gentleman who is, you know, self-stimulating eight times a day and it's not interfering with his activities of daily living and he's not distressed, that still is normal. So when, you know, and normal is self-defined. We can talk about what is societal norms. What does society accept and what does it know? And that's very dependent on a variety of conditions, right? So we know in ancient Rome and Greece, same-sex relationships were accepted and embraced. And it was a form of changing from uh, infancy to adolescent to adulthood. Really? Yeah. Boys used to take an older a male lover to treat, to teach him how to uh, be intimate with a woman and it was a transient uh, occurrence. There are certain communities where same-sex relationships are accepted and what have you, but in others, they're not. So very often sexuality is a function of uh, the culture and a function of what's going on outside your four walls. So if I'm reading Glamour magazine and it's saying, you know, a normal sex life is this many times a week, et cetera, et cetera, then I should probably, and by the way, um, Glamour, don't get mad at me because I just made up a magazine. I'm not saying you wrote this article. I have no idea who wrote the article. So a magazine. So that shouldn't be fair because I, I will admit, and you know, I, I have to be vulnerable if I'm going to do a podcast here. I wonder like, what is normal? Like how many times a week? And I sometimes have asked friends and I never get a straight answer, by the way. And I have Googled this. And you're not alone. You're not alone either because everybody (laughs) wants to be, you know, accepted or above average. Right. So, and again, I think your point is very, very well taken. And I think all these data points that we see in the news or magazines are really large surveys, right? So we can say, on average, the North American couple has sex X amount of times a year or once a week is the, is the average. But that doesn't translate into, I would call satisfaction, right? So you can have sex twice a day and be unsatisfied and be the, the meaning behind the sexual encounter is not fulfilling and it's not, you're not getting any kind of reward to it. Um, or you can have sex once a month and it's really a, a very emotional, uh, wonderful experience. So again, it's this PRO or patient reported outcome that is really important. So we, we in the sexual medicine arena, we try to move away from what's normal, right? I don't know what's normal. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know. And again, everybody defines their own normal and I would say if you're having sex once a day and you're happy and that works for you and it works for your partner and you're not in distress and everybody is happy and you feel satisfied, then that's your normal. But if you're having sex once a day and you're not and you want it twice or three times and you're 
distressed and upset and frustrated and it causes marital discord and you're fighting, then it becomes a problem. So everybody has to really understand their own context in which they have sexual intimacy. Okay. So then you said that where it could become a problem, because I guess it's then when do you seek help? Because you made a statement earlier around it impacting your life. So what does that mean? Right? So for example, you know, you're making a statement of if it's not enough or too much, then that's impacting your life. But then is that like, when does one know that's a discussion with my partner and we just have to negotiate versus there is something wrong. And this is complex. Cause like, for example, you know, even you were mentioning earlier about self-pleasure, are we allowed to say masturbation publicly? I'm going to, and hopefully no one gets mad at me, but like there's shame involved. Like I've seen books where it says women should masturbate once a day, you know, get their freedom. And, you know, then some people don't talk about it. Then you had recently on the, the bachelor where a woman shows up with her vibrator as a way to introduce herself to the new bachelor. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. I guess, when does someone know when it's a negotiation versus when it's time to seek help? Well, I would go back to the fundamentals of, you know, partnership or relationships. Okay. Remember, we're always compromising. Uh, you know, every day we do something we don't really want to do in our relationship for the benefit of our partner and vice versa. And sex is no different. So we're always negotiating sex and what is going on and how often and what's to be touched and how do I like it and what have you. And I think you know, for me, if you are unhappy in the relationship could be because your partner's not taking out the garbage, you got to have a sit down discussion before you go to divorce court, right, over the garbage. And again, I think communication is the most important thing. But for some reason, when it comes to sexual activity, we put it like on this pedestal, right? that we can't talk about it. We talk about, you know, you always like to go for Chinese food or for, you know, or for burgers and I always like pizza. And you hope at the end of the day, you go for the same amount of burgers and pizza, what you love and what I love. But when it comes to sex, we feel like we can't communicate. So I think, you know, for me, if something is troubling you and you're upset about something, it's good to share the burden and it's good to communicate initially. And very often, you know, humans can problem solve. And very often things, as we said, they're problems and they're episodic and they're temporary and they have easy fixes and then they move on. But if something is persistent, I would say that is a really important issue. And you're persistently feeling having negative feelings about yourself, about your relationship. I think that's the, the appropriate time to get professional help. So then, you know, I looked at several types of disorders, like I'd mentioned, libido, arousal, and orgasms. And the reason why I wanted to focus on that is I surveyed folks on my uh, social media and it was different flavors of libido that they wanted to better understand. I know that there's other things like pelvic floor dysfunction, and other aspects. And I do cover so many of those topics on other episodes. And so I'll just leave that to, for folks to better understand like how their pelvic floor should be operating and things like that. There's many episodes there. So I thought maybe we can just be really specific around the libido arousal and orgasms. And I'm curious why in some of the research that I did, they're differentiated. I mean, are they really that differentiated? Are they just fine lines? Let's start off with libido. There's a whole variety of different 
facets of sexual desire or fantasies or sexual interests. So libido, interest, desire are all synonyms. And in the healthcare community, we've transitioned from desire and arousal and orgasm to be separate and distinct. And now by definition, we include desire and arousal together. And there's a big controversy. So you have spontaneous libido. That just is you, you wake up and you're interested and there's no stimulus. And, and there are some researchers that say there's always a stimulus. It's always reactive. You're reacting to something. And, you know, and then there's other people that say, you know, reactive libido is you start off as neutral. A lot of women really need permission to understand that they can start off as neutral. They can take sex or leave it. They're not interested. They're busy. They have a lot of work in the home, out of the home, family, uh, children, work, what have you. And sex isn't on their brain. But when it happens, it's nice. And those are, you know, when the right cues are there, it's very nice to engage. And reactive libido is I start off, I, I don't really want to do it. But I, once I'm in the mood, I kind of realize, wow, this is good. And I, the best analogy I can give you is me and going to the gym. You know, I don't wake up and say, yay, I want to go to the gym and go work out and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I couldn't care less if I go to the gym. I have a million and one things to do. My buddy says, Mike, go to the gym. We'll work out. You'll feel better. So I like, I don't really want to go, but I go nonetheless. And I'm working out and sweating and I'm saying, wow, like I feel really good. You know, I'm catching up with my friend and I'm feeling really good and this is great. I should go to the gym three times a week. I'm going to commit to do this more regularly. And you know what happens the next morning when I wake up? I say, only crazy people go to the gym. I'm so busy, right? Got it. So that means that sometimes you need arousal to convince you that your desire is there. So, you know, by definition, desire is more thoughts, fantasies, wants, needs, and it could be spontaneous or reactive. Arousal is, there's a lot of physiological things that happen. Increased breathing, swelling of tissue, rapid breathing, what have you. You see the physiological response in terms of engorgement and what have you. Um, and it's a continuum. So it goes from desire to arousal to orgasm is the ultimate, people calling it the ultimate release. Um, you know, you have ejaculation for men and you may even have ejaculation for women as well. And, and then you have resolution. So it's a continuum of uh, sexual experience. The important thing I think to remember is that you can get satisfaction at every stage. You don't have to go from point A all the way to orgasm to have sexual satisfaction. For some people, it's just being aroused, being close, being touched, and they feel very, very sensually aroused, or they may have you know, these tingling feelings. Um, a lot of people culminate and want to have orgasmic release, and that is also perfectly uh, fine for different individuals. So again, the way that I see it is it's really a continuum of behavior and one really leads into another with the caveat that now we're, we have arousal and interest for women that is really one disorder. We're not, we're not linking it 
or breaking it apart. We lump them together when previously they were separated. And the other issue I think is also to remember is how does the brain fit into this? And I think it's really important because you can have brain body disconnect. When you are a woman, your brain could be really interested. I wanna have sex, I'm really interested and your genitals are not responding, right? And vice versa, your genitals could be responding and your brain could be turned off because this is just not in my uh, scope of practice because I'm so horrified, but your body is reacting almost independently. There was this concept of subjective arousal and genital arousal. Subjective arousal is in your brain. I'm aroused, I'm interested, I'm really very much interested in what's going on sexually. And genital arousal is the physiological response. I'm become, my tissues are becoming engorged, I'm lubricating, I'm really feeling the increased blood flow or what have you. So it, just because you have one doesn't mean you won't have the other and just be, they could be separate and distinct. I'm still just so fascinated by when people should be seeking help and because everything seems to be a continuum. And I think like, for example, as I was listening to you talking, I think there's a lot of people who, and again, I'm not the, the person who sees the expert, so maybe you can confirm or deny this, is um, that there may be this false goal of always achieving orgasm as it's not good until that happens. Seems to be that's the baseline, right? Is what feels good to you. And you know, trying to always focus on orgasm could be detrimental. And actually, do you find that as well, that some people focus so much on it must be that if it's not, it's bad? You know, it's like the marathon runner who only focuses on the finish line. I think the important concept is the sexual journey. And when you become so focused on the goal, sometimes the goal becomes unreachable. And sometimes focusing on the goal of getting to the finish line prevents you from running the race, right? because you're not focused on what's going on. You're monitoring your behavior. So I think the important concept of sexual intimacy is to focus on sexual pleasure, focus on the journey to orgasm. And you know, it's not a failure if you don't have orgasmic release. Um, you're still enjoying the journey that you have. There's always rewards from being sexually intimate. So I think that's an important concept that you make is sometimes you get so goal oriented and so narrow focused and so uh, existing with sexual blinders on that you've got to reach an orgasm. You've got to reach an orgasm and it has to be good. And if it's not a positive thing, if we haven't had it, that is, you get, you get people that are very much in their head, right? Yep. And we always say that, you know, the, there is a very, very strong correlative. So for women that are always in their head and always monitoring their response and their orgasm, they have a challenge to achieve it because they're monitoring. How come I'm not having an orgasm? I should have an orgasm. This feels good and I wanna have it. They have brain body disconnect, right? It's kind of like when you are playing football, you got to be on the field playing. You can't be on the bleachers monitoring the playing field. So when you start monitoring your orgasm, you kind of disconnect all those 
hormones that are, are going on and neurotransmitters that are going on in order for you to have orgasmic release. So the more you monitor, it's called spectatoring, the more you monitor, the less likely you're going to achieve your goal. So I'm going to break this out a little bit because as you were talking, there's a movie that Sarah Jessica Parker was in. I can't remember the name of it, but the beginning scene is, I think she's having intercourse or thinking, anyways, the bubbles are coming up where it's, right. you know, I got to take the kids here. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do, and I've talked to a lot of my friends and it's like, yep. And so legitimately we do have a lot on our plate and everyone has it to a different degree. So I want to start with your recommendation there, but then I also want to dive into other things that can contribute to some of these um, challenges that we may have in our sexual lives. So for the, those of us who are in our heads, I will admit I am, I am one of them. What advice would you give? Cause it's like, well, legitimately there's a lot, where do I have space? Yes. I want to have fun, but also we women we're caretakers and we tend to worry about everything else first and then ourselves last. And so what's a, a realistic set of guidelines? Cause just to say the statement, this is so annoying. I'll oh, just relax. Like, so please right. don't do that. I don't think you no, will, but no, I, I, I think, <laughs> I think the important thing to remember is women are still the primary caregivers. They're still the cookers, the cleaners. They work in the home, out of the home. They monitor, you know, Zoom calls. They are overwhelmed with a lot of things that are going on at a day-to-day -day basis. And you hit the nail right on the head. Women deprioritize themselves. I'm very about practical suggestions. The first thing is, I always tell women, don't feel guilty about taking care of yourself. And I think it's really important for women to take care of themselves. We're so busy taking care of everybody else that we don't take care of ourselves. Take 30 minutes. And if you wanna just veg out and go for a walk or, or do yoga or read a book, be good to yourself. We teach from the moment that we're born, share your toys, be good to your siblings. We don't teach women or men to be good to themselves and to do good things for yourself. The other thing, there's practical suggestions. I mean, I think if we, we're, humans are typically nighttime sex people, we've got to learn how to disconnect from, from all the other pressures that are going on in our lives. That means let's turn off anything that starts with an I, iPhone, iPad, you know, I, <laughs> Nano, um, turn off computers um, and decompress and no electronics. I always say no electronics in the bedroom. I also think it's important to practice staying focused outside of the bedroom before you bring it into the bedroom. Because if you're in your head now, during this podcast, I can tell you're thinking about what's the next question? Where are we going to go? If you are already in your head outside of the bedroom, it's a natural extension. It's going to come there. Right. So I think the best advice, I know it sounds maybe a little corny is, but live authentically and live in the moment, mindful. When you are cleaning the dishes, you clean the dishes. Uh, you feel the water, you feel the soap, you feel the warmth of the water. You know, it's a little bit more than stopping and smelling the roses. It's really staying focused in just five minutes a day of staying focused and staying in the moment and then translate that into those activities 
during intimacy. And we know there's been studies that have been done. Uh, Lori Brado, a good colleague of mine, she has done studies on mindfulness and sexual activity. And when you stay focused on your body and your responses and you're really thinking about your body and how it's responding and the why, why am I intimate? He's a great person. She's a great person and I really love her and I want to stay connected. If you stay in the moment and you have your have focus, then it'll heighten the sexual response. So again, I think the best way, like I always say, you know, the best way to have great sex is to start practicing outside of the bedroom. That and makes so much sense. What about medically. So if we use that as a baseline of the self-care, so we have the dynamics of the relationship, we've covered communication, then there's self-care. Now, medically, so I know like one of the things I, I saw a lot of is menopause and I'm in perimenopause now, and I've also given birth. And I will tell you, I, I did not know this. And I think I've seen it in some TV shows now where people joke about it, I guess, in um, when the women are pregnant, they like always want to have sex. Holy cow. I felt like I was a 17 year old teenage boy. It was absolutely insane <laughs> what it was like to be pregnant. I did not, I was not prepared. So I, I definitely see from the extreme there and like regular living, how um, hormones do play a role. And I know in menopause, it's very, very different. So that's, that's one. And there's others too. So maybe you can just break down some of the things that can impact us that are potentially out of our control and, and even more so need guidance of a medical professional. Right. So your, your point is well taken about hormones, but remember it's an interplay of a lot of different hormones and yep. neurotransmitters. It's not just estrogen and testosterone. And I can Agreed. tell you, I see a lot of women who've undergone cancer therapy and they can't be on hormones and they don't have one drop of estrogen and one drop of testosterone in their body, but they're having great sex. So there's alternative pathways. I really feel like if one area is you know, deficient, sometimes other areas get more heightened. And it's kind of like a multi-hit phenomena, right? So think about it. When you're 18 and you think you're sassy and sexy and no one can stop you and you, 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 don't, you don't have any kind of impact on your hormones and everything is great and you don't have any stress or fatigue. And then, you know, and then you go and you're now in graduate school and you have a little more stress to study and that kind of adds a layer of more anxiety and impacts your hormones. And then you get married and you have a kid and you have more responsibility. So it's a layered effect sometimes that it's all these microaggressions that are additive. So when you were 18 and 19 and on birth control pills and you could super impose and supersede the lower testosterone, but as you get into your 30s, the lower testosterone may be much more impactful because you have all these other things that are kind of chipping away at your libido. So very often it's an additive issue when you're talking about insults. We know that there's medications like antidepressant medications can influence desire and influence libido. We know birth control pills, uh, you know, worldwide over 300 million women are taking birth control pills. And for some women, they may have lower testosterone 
and it may influence their level of libido, but that's temporally associated. So if you say, oh, I started the, the birth control pill and six, seven weeks later, I have no libido, that may be associated to medication. So we're looking at medication, chronic medical conditions. Also, I have devoted most of my career to cancer patients. You know, what we do, whether it's uh, chemotherapy or radiation, or surgery, we alter the anatomy, we alter what's called the sexual self-esteem, how we view ourselves as sexual people, that also can certainly influence your response. So chronic conditions, even age, we know the longer you're with somebody, the less sex you have. And that's just a natural progression of the human experience, right? And it takes a lot of work. People say, oh, you know, it takes a lot of work. One of my fascinating things that I study is who are these couples that have been married 25, 35, 45 years and are still chasing each other around the room and having great sex? And so tell me, what have you, because that was going to be my next question is, okay, are these people being truthful or are they making it up and making people who are like more typical feel bad? So tell me. No, I think that, I think there's some credence to that. We okay. see that they communicate very well and they focus on novelty and they focus on the daily activities of novelty, meaning they make sex fun and they, it's not predictable. It's not the Saturday night special, right? You know, oh, you know, we always have sex between eight and nine on Saturday night and we are always in this position and what have you. So novelty is really important and unpredictability. Okay. Plus you get comfortable, more comfortable discussing your wants and your needs and what have you. So I think it's a combination of those uh, issues. When communication breaks down, that's when you start having problems with, with sexual activity. And very often people will come to me as a sex therapist or counselor or medical doctor and they say, we're not having sex and we really wanna have sex. And I said, okay, let's start at the beginning. Um, and we find out that they don't want to even spend time together because they don't talk. They don't eat dinner at the same tape at the same table, and they don't communicate about emotional things. They're just really operational. Who's taking Tim, Timmy to soccer and Kelly to ballet? They don't talk about their emotional connectedness. There's no preamble to sexual activity. There's no touching. There's no holding. There's no kissing. There's no oral pleasure or manual pleasure. They just want to go right to the sexual activity. So I say, look, that's the end game. Sex is the end game. Let's build from the beginning. And very often you'll find that somewhere along the road, they have had some breakdown in communication or discussion. Thank you for that. That's really, really helpful. A couple of things. So I know that when we were originally talking about how things are so different for men and women, like one of the things that I was recently reading about is, you know, we may talk about premature orgasm with men and apparently women can also face this. And I was curious if you could comment on that, because again, this goes to how does one know if it's the case? And if it is the case, what can one do about it? So, and again, a lot of these definitions are really self-defined, like, okay. you know, premature ejaculation is before the man, you know, wants to ejaculate. And again, there may be a medical component, but again, we also have to look at the anxiety component as well okay. uh, into that. And, and it's the same thing as delayed orgasm for both men and women. And very often there's a, this heightened sense of awareness and anxiety, uh, you know, and expectation. 
I think we have to realize that we need to set realistic expectations. And you hit it on the head when you were talking about a magazine and they, they set unrealistic expectations and they make people feel bad yep. about themselves when in reality, it may not be perpetuation of truth, right? And it's the same kind of thing. We've seen it, you know, the images that we see on a day-to-day basis of what is a sexy man or a sexy woman is not the norm of where we are. So it ends up... Uh, affecting our self-esteem and it affects how we view ourselves. Like we can't aspire to that because that's unattainable. So I think it's really important to set goals and see what's realistic for you. Again, as you were talking, I was envisioning how it, it really is interesting how all of these external factors in society impact us, but I will say we don't always know when that is happening. And I think it's so great to see things like meditation, I know the bullet journal has become common as like a way to like really start writing down kind of your thoughts and planning and things like that. Not, I'm not trying to say now let's plan because I know we want to go with the flow and get to know ourselves, but I think it's a way of like journaling your thoughts and and whatnot. And it reminds me of a moment where I was living in California for a short period of time and I did a lot of camping. And I remember when I was doing that, all I wanted was more outdoors. And I'm like, I guess I just need like more camping gear. And then the trip was done. Then I was walking in a city and there were these beautiful windows with the fanciest clothing. And I'm like, wow. And I'm like, it's the windows. If the windows weren't there with the beautiful clothes telling me that that's what I should be buying, I would not have cared because when I was camping, all I wanted was to see mountains and the sunrise and sunset. And so I think we don't always know until we get that shock to the system. We're like, wait a minute, it's the external factors. What do I actually want? And it's such an interesting thing that we, I think should really continue to focus on is is who we are and what we need. And I think that's such a great baseline expectation to be setting for ourselves. It's about a personal journey, right? Yeah. And it's about, you know, life is about your personal journey of what you want to do and and how you want to do it. And sex should be a part of that journey as well. And everybody, I mean, we are a product of external factors, of course, and society, what they have expectations about us and what we should and shouldn't do. But I think it it is really important to recognize that the journey in sexual function and sexual pleasure is really an individualized one. And people have different um, levels of, of frequency and different levels of satisfaction. And it's about navigating those when you're with a, a partner who has different levels than you. And again, compromise and communication is really important. Great. And then if medical treatment is required, and I know some of it could be psychological treatment or psychiatric treatment, like what are the types of things that can be done? Like I was struck by when you were talking about cancer patients, how, you know, where their hormone levels are and you're still able to be able to help them. So what, what is the solutioning look like? Well, you know, what I would say for all sexual health issues, my approach is from conservative to aggressive. So conservative is behavioral things, bibliotherapy, reading books, talking about sex, sex, not becoming a taboo topic is actually something that will help 
your treatment. So there's a whole lot of exercises, date nights, spending time together, even walking on the beach holding hands when you couldn't stand each other before, getting back to the basics is really important. So you can go from conservative to more aggressive treatments, and that's really, you know, behavioral issues. Then we have nutraceuticals, herbs, and supplements that may be helpful. We also have hormones, estrogen, testosterone, variety of other things that we can use. And then there's also advanced medications that, you know, there's two drugs that are approved for women. And again, they're not without side effects, but for some women, it's life-changing. And again, very, very important to kind of have that whole paradigm. And again, I think that it's an interplay. I think it's, uh, I think I want people to, to realize that you, it's like the depression model. You get one level uh, treated by medicine, you get, you know, to level 10. You get one level uh, by therapy alone, you get to level 10. But if you add them together, you really get to level 20. So it's a combination effect. And you don't have to see a formalized counselor or therapist. It's just about doing the work. Have you heard of the app Dipsy? I have not. You have not. No. I want you to download it and check it out. So okay. I met the founder at, they have this great thing in New York City back when I had more time on my hands. It was called Founders Friday and they would have founders of different startups come and present. And there's this young woman um, and it's a, it's a sexual storytelling app. And there's like people who are being recorded and she would talk the funny stories about how they would do the recordings like crunching paper to make a certain sound and whatever so they would recreate different scenes and you can pick how intense you want the sex scene to be and they do all sorts of types women women men 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 women whatever and then she also has in there things I think that are like teaching you certain aspects of getting to know your body and like walking you through the steps of getting in touch and it is truly amazing. And I just want to commend her because I know when she was starting out like Facebook and Instagram, it took a while to be able to post on social media because they were accusing it of being porn. And her intent right. was really, we all deserve to be sexual beings and let's empower people to be able to do that. So it's a great app. Uh, so it's D-I-P as in Paul, S-E-A. And I think it's like 60 bucks a year. So I admit I, I downloaded it because it's so amazing. I was like, wow, this is like, thank you. What a gift. So I would highly recommend that. So before we end today, I would love to get your thoughts on, you know, what would be the one or two things you want people to walk away with for optimizing their sexual health? What, what advice and, and hope would you give them? So I would say you're not alone and don't suffer in silence and recognize that even though you're hearing all these stories at the gym or reading all these articles and everybody in the whole universe is having the most amazing sex and you're the one that's not, realize you're not alone and there's no reason to suffer in silence. And when I say suffer in silence, I mean, if you're, pro if you're troubled and it's upsetting you, there are kind, compassionate healthcare professionals, whether they're medical doctors or nurse practitioners or counselors or therapists that wanna help you attain sexual vitality. And the other message I would say is, you know, sexual health and wellness is general health and it's, and it's a right. And it's something that everybody should aspire to achieve, but it's defined by themselves. I love that statement. Now, given you are doing so much research and, and working with so many different types of patients, and thank you so much for 
what I would call it almost advocacy work that you're doing for it. What would you say is your greatest hope? Well, I think I'm living my greatest hope is that women are becoming empowered. And I choose, I'm fortunate enough to choose projects where I want women to be empowered over their career, over their sexual health, over their bodies. And I really think that we are now seeing a trend towards women becoming more and more interested in sexual health and in, in optimizing and not really deprioritizing themselves. So I think the biggest uh, issue for me is that we're moving in the right direction and right. we're seeing more direct, you know, we have two medicines and hopefully we'll have more for women. And, you know, I think the paternalism where uh, you have a male dominated society telling women what to do is hopefully over. And, you know, I'm all for women being advocates and especially advocates for themselves as well. Thank you so much for your time. This was such a great discussion and I really appreciate you sharing your perspective. And I, I think I know um, it put a lot of ease on my mind too, because I've always just been so curious and no one tells women anything. <laughs> no one tells many patients much of anything. And so it's right, just great to hear from the And that's an important point. To, <laughs> and it's probably the best point to end on is keep the discussion going. Yeah, it's not, true. it's not, it's not an embarrassment. It's not something you whisper. And I think, I think we all f fall victim to that. Remember you said, I hope we can say the word masturbation, right? Yeah. We still have work to do if we're thinking that. I know. I know. Well, I remember the statement you made where you were working, talking to, uh, on the Today Show and they were like, you can't say the word vagina. So I'm just like, I don't know what's allowed these days. So I just don't want someone to delete this podcast episode. Right. I hear you. I understand. <laughs> have right, a great right. day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye.